Hi everyone and welcome to Superwoman Wellness. I'm Dr. Taz. I've made it my mission throughout my career in integrative medicine to support women in restoring their health using a blend of Eastern medical wisdom with modern science. In this show, I will guide you through different practices to find your power type and fully embody the healthiest and most passionate version of you. I'm here for you and I can't wait to get started. This is a Soul Fire production. Welcome back everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Superwoman Wellness where you know I am determined to bring you back to your superpowered self. Now, many of us are juggling, running families, taking care of children, and it's been a little bit harder probably this past year than in years before, given the pandemic and what many of our children have gone through. This particular topic caught my eye because we are dealing with this at home. I want to welcome Dr. Sam Goldstein to the show. Dr. Goldstein obtained his PhD in school psychology from the University of Utah and is a licensed psychologist and certified school psychologist in the state of Utah. He's a board certified pediatric neuropsychologist and listed in the Council for the National Register of Health Service Providers in Psychology. He has authored, co-edited, or co-authored over 50 clinical and trade publications, three dozen textbook chapters, nearly three dozen peer-reviewed scientific articles, and eight psychological and neuropsychological tests. Since 1980, he has served as the clinical director of the Neurology, Learning, and Behavior Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. Welcome to the show, Dr. Goldstein. You are obviously very well credentialed. We need you. I'm so glad to have you here. Thanks, Dr. Taz. Can I call you Dr. Taz? Absolutely. I'll call you Dr. Sam. How's that? that that's what the kids call me. Dr. Perfect. Sam. Perfect. Well, your field is an interesting one. You know, I started my career in pediatrics and I now run an integrative practice, a couple of integrative practices here. And I'm still really bothered with how our children collectively are doing, how they're doing mentally how they have endured the pandemic. And then even here at home, I have a 12 and 13 year old and I got to see sort of firsthand, you know, the sort of mental health impacts of that. And it played out in many different ways. What inspired you to write this book, which is about to be released in two weeks, Tenacity in Children, Raising Resilient Children, Raising a Self-Disciplined Child. Tell us the inspiration behind that. So those are three different books. And, oh, okay, and sorry, that, I was reading all off this one. It's a triad of books. This is the newest one, Tenacity okay. Children. But this is the 14th book I've written with Bob Brooks, who's been at Harvard. And we joined forces about 30 years ago when we came to the conclusion that what's right about children uh, is a much better predictor of what will happen to them in life than what's wrong with them. And that our approach needs to shift from trying to fix what's wrong and usually ignoring what's right to managing the challenges they have, but building on whatever assets they have. That when you transition into adult life, no one asks you about your worst subject or your most annoying behavior. The more liabilities you have, the more important assets become. Wow, okay, so that's a shift in thinking because for so many parents, every child is a project, right? Like it's a, like, how do I mold them? How do I groom them? How do I get them you know, in this sort of path or in this sort of uh, corner, you know, what, what is wrong with that thinking from, a, let's, even before we get to the kids, from a parenting standpoint, what is sort of wrong with that thinking? Well, it's based on what would appear to be belief, which is a valuable ally in the absence of fact, or on common sense, which most of us rely on when we try and think about complex topics, but it's erroneous scientifically. 
if you look at children who struggled growing up with emotional or behavioral or social or developmental problems, whatever the diagnoses, whatever the pathology we assign to them because of their differences, those who fare best in adult life aren't those who had the most medications, the most treatment, or in the most special education classes, but rather those who had other assets, other strengths, other abilities that uh, they were afforded opportunities to take advantage of. And that's really the difference in outcome, whether it's children with autism or attention deficit or depression or anxiety or learning disability or a host of medical problems that we see here at this clinic, including brain injuries and genetic disorders. It's what's right about you that best predicts. And the more liabilities you have, the more important assets become. And, and I'll just add, when I tell that to parents, and I still do 150 to 200 evaluations a year in the clinic, uh, they're relieved. They're relieved to know that what's right about their children is far more important than what's wrong. Wow, I mean, that's powerful stuff because I think many of us are so trained to look for what's wrong. Again, it's that negative brain or you go to the worst case scenario all the time and we don't focus on what's really right about them. So that's a great place for moms that are listening. If any of you guys are listening, you know, it's a great place for us to begin what's right about them. But where do we go from there? If we recognize it, we identify it, we know what's right. I can give you examples from right here at home. I've got one that what's right about her is her creativity, her, you know, athleticism, you know, her sort of uh, humor. I mean, hilarious kid. Whereas the other one, what's right about him is his academic prowess, his intellect and his, you know, determination. He's just, he's just got a different sort of brain. And it's interesting to see what's right about them. But then we have these constructs, we put them in and we're worried that they won't thrive in a certain academic situation or in a certain school or in a certain environment. So where do we as parents, like if they're like me and they've already established, I know what's right about my kids, where do we go next? What do we do next? Well, and what you're describing in your children, we refer to as an island of competence. Something that gives you a sense of identity and purpose. You don't have to be the best in the world, but it's how <coughs> you identify Right. Right. And we have a saying, Bob and I, the, the larger your ocean of inadequacy, the more desperately you need an island of competence. So when you ask where to go next, just quickly to explain the journey of this, of yeah. this book, we're referring to this as the essential triad of child development. We coined that term. Okay. And the first part is resilience. That's the Raising Resilient Children book came out 20 years ago, still among my best-selling books. And the focus is on uh, coping over time and demonstrating the ordinary magic of belief and mindset and attitude and opportunity in explaining why some children cope much better than others with adversity. And it isn't about how many medicines or how many treatments we throw at you. It's about opportunities to give you a chance to feel normal, mm. to understand who you are. The second book in the series was on self-discipline because we came to appreciate that you could understand all the qualities of resilient thinking and behaving and feeling. But if you didn't have the self-discipline to stop and think and, and do it, you knew what to do, but you didn't do what you knew. Right. Now, a lot of kids know, but don't do because they're impulsive or anxious. Or So that was the second series of, of helping parents and clinicians and educators understand the role self-discipline plays in everything mm -hmm. you do. I mean, leave it home one day, you might have a fun day for a day, and then there's a price to pay. Right. The third in the series is about instinct. And that's what this book is about. 
we, we, we looked at human instinct and we looked at the research. I was a brain researcher before I decided I liked children better than rats. So I come at it from a science background and there's, there's all this wonderful research that has not made its way into the practice of parenting or into education, uh, looking at that the children without anyone telling them will display compassionate behavior, will display altruistic behavior, will engage in fair behavior, will be optimistic, will be motivated. There's such good research. And we've looked at children as blank slates. The Latin is tabla rasa. Mm-hmm. We're going to paint on them. Yep. And, and some look at them as homunculi. The term is uh, just a rose, you know, unfolding. There's nothing you can do about it. Mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is that the role we play, even if biology isn't destiny, even if it affects probability, the 20% role we play in how our children's instincts, how their genetically driven instincts express themselves makes a hundred percent difference in the quality of their lives. Wow. So for us, it was coming full circle, this, this triad of books. And, and this book, we described the seven and, and what parents can do to create experiences. So our, our belief is you, you don't teach this to children. You create opportunities for them to experience it. Parents will ask me, how do I motivate my child? And my response is, you cannot. You can create experiences in which your child can find motivation. Mm. Yes, force someone to be motivated or optimistic or, or empathic or to think critically. You have to give them opportunities to learn how to do it. And the last thing I'll say is a child could have all the genes to speak. If you don't speak to them, they won't talk. A child could have all the genes to socialize. If you don't give them an opportunity to do it, they won't know how to do it. So these complex human behaviors that we want our children to develop to become functional adults are not like walking. They're not instincts like a bird building a nest or a fish swimming upstream that the child just does without a model. These are behaviors that require day in and day out positive experiences to develop. Wow, well, let's break them down. So you talk about the seven instincts of tenacity and you also talk about the unholy trinity. You want to hit the unholy trinity first, and then let's go into the seven instincts of tenacity. Sure. And, and, and we're not arguing that there are only 10 human instincts. Right. We've chosen these because the research is the strongest. Got and it. some of them, like uh, if we have time to talk about simultaneous intelligence, really is a much better understanding of what intelligence is about. And it's not how many words you know or your vocabulary um, it's different. So we could talk about that. But coming back to the, to the uh, seven, yep. we think they're affirmative. Coming back to the three, we call the unholy trinity. We think they were affirmative at one time, mm-hmm. but are no longer. And, and the three, I'll tell you quickly, yeah. belief. And, and uh, belief's a valuable ally in the absence of fact. And, and humans believe almost anything. And, and it, it, we come by it honestly. Because for hundreds of thousands of years, Homo sapien ancestors and other human ancestors for millions of years before that, you didn't know if the sun would come up the next day, if you would find enough sustenance, if the weather would get warm after becoming cold. We evolved to believe. Believe is such a powerful resource for us and and it can do a lot of good, it can do a lot of harm. Mm. You see how belief, religious belief, political belief, social belief, uh, how it's doing harm in the world today. So that's one. The second one is a fear of difference. Mm-hmm. That, 
that over hundreds of thousands of years, you kept to your group because the other group across the valley, they might hit you over the head and have you for supper. Right. And, and so there's this fear of difference. And, and yes, culture builds some of it into how we think, but there's an intrinsic and instinctual fear of, of difference that makes us uncomfortable. And finally, the last one I refer to as brain dancing. It's a, a term I borrowed from the anthropologist, Dean Falk. All of us at any moment are brain dancing, mm -hmm. meaning we have an aggressive response to any perceived threat or any perceived problem. So belief, fear of difference, and an aggressive response, even when there's no threat. I will argue, and we argue in the book, open a newspaper, turn on the news. Uh, nearly everything wrong can be attributed to one of, or more of those three variables. I'm not saying they're the only cause, but right. they are the driver. And, and the solution is, we're not going to get them out of our genes. The solution is to recognize the damage they can do when they are reinforced and left unchecked. And the solution, we believe, and it's belief, I try and separate science, as you do, from non-science, from just right. nonsense, right? Right. It's our belief that by, by strengthening and instilling these seven, we give children greater capacity to resist irrational belief, to resist aggressive response, to not be afraid of difference, but to embrace difference in a reasonable way. That's what we're arguing. Well, I love it. And I, you know, this, the times, right? The times call for this. Our children need, we all need to figure out how to, how to enable our children to navigate this. So what are these seven instincts that you, you feel like are responsible for tenacity? What would you say they are? One, and we've given them a, a term. So, so they're ours rather than just talking about optimism. We talk about intuitive optimism, right? You, you just intuitively know. Young children want to cook, clean, drive the car. We think it's humorous. Mm -hmm. No, it's the force that drives their development because for our children, nowadays, children don't grow up until they're 30. There's this long period of development and, and you have to believe that you can succeed, that if you don't know how to walk, you have to believe if you get up and fall down, you're gonna walk. You and I, if we were learning to walk at our age, you're much younger than me, but if we were learning to walk at our age, we would fall down three or four times and say, nah, this walking stuff, it's not for me, right? Or right. talking or anything. There's an, how do they know if they just keep scribbling, they'll make something people can recognize. Mm -hmm. There's this intuitive optimism. So that's one. Two, intrinsic motivation. You don't have to pay a two-year-old to, to do anything. They want to help. They want to be part, right? And by the time kids <coughs> turn five or six, you ask them to do something and they want to know, well, what's in it? For right, me? right. It's cultural, right? And, and I, parents that we work with, and again, I see kids with lots of problems, but parents we work with will in, intuitively, um, uh, if I say to them, don't tell the child what to do, ask for help. And suddenly the children help. Before we run out of time, empathy, being, being willing to stop and, and recognize others' needs, simultaneous intelligence. I want to spend time on that. Altruism, mm -hmm. being of yourself. And, and we know even in, in the nowadays on YouTube, you can see all these research projects with monkeys. And, and monkeys, chimps, young chimps will help the experimenters without being directed to do so, just like young children. Yeah, We're built in to do that. 
responsibility, acting in a way that you know accepts responsibility, which in our culture now everybody wants to pass the buck. And then fairness, mm-hmm. as you're well aware, with two kids, it's always about fairness. And and fairness for kids is if I'm getting more than you, that's fair. Right. And, and if not, it's unfair. But right. it's in our genes. Ten thousand years ago, we were all we were all generalists. We didn't do everybody did everything. Right. And now we're such specialists that we pay people in our society millions of dollars to entertain us. Mm-hmm. When you take a step back and think about it, it boggles the mind, right? And okay, so that's the six. And in the book, we define them. We review the research in a way people can understand it. We offer guidelines of, of how to create experiences to strengthen and reinforce it. But the one I want to touch on is intelligence because most parents believe that intelligence is about how much you know. And, and most gifted programs in the schools, you can't get accepted if you're not advanced in reading and math. Right. Well, what does advanced reading and math have to do with being intelligent? That's a consequence of opportunity more than anything else. Yes, you have to have some memory, but it's still opportunity driven. In the tests that we've developed that are used very widely, the, the, the tasks kids do are intuitive a patterning task, circle, square, circle, square, empty space. And kids in, in the outback, uh, Aboriginal children in the outback of Australia perform the same as your kids would perform at the same age. Wow. So the word we use is simultaneous. And I'll give you two examples so listeners will understand. If I say two, four, six, eight, ten, 10, you only need to know 10 to predict 12. Right. Predict the sequence. How about this one? One, three, six, 10, 15, 21. To know 21 comes next. Mm-hmm. You have to appreciate the gap between every pair of numbers increases by one. Otherwise you don't know what comes after tw- 21, right. Right? right? You have to simultaneously see all the pieces. If I give you 10 facts about an animal and you randomly pick three, you may choose an animal that matches the three doesn't match the remaining seven. Good critical thinkers see how all the pieces fit together in the box in ways that other people don't. That's what real intelligence is about. And when we measure that kind of thinking in any child culturally, uh, given their ethnicity, given their financial opportunities in their families, they all test the same at the same ages. We are one species. Homo sapien, regardless of our skin color, regardless of our religious beliefs, our brains work the same, and any difference in knowledge is a consequence, you know, of experience. And and I really want your viewers to know this. And I'll tell you what I'm going to do mm-hmm. when, when our book comes in two weeks. If you would like, I will send you a dozen books, and you can gift them to yes, any of your please do. listeners or readers any way you want. You can give them out. I would love it. We have a lot of moms and we have people like me, quite honestly, who listen to the show and are raising children of different ages. And, you know, many of them are accomplished in their own right and think that, you know, we can imprint that strategy on our children, whereas our children may be completely different. Hi there, Superwomen. We all want to glow from within, right? We're always looking for that magic elixir, that magic cure. 
but it all begins with a good foundation, which includes getting those healthy superfoods in. So I love Organifi. Organifi is a blend of different superfoods. Organifi Glow, love the name. Organifi Glow has some of the key ingredients we need to glow. For example, it has Amla. How many times have I talked about Amla? It is a potent antioxidant, one of the highest vitamin C fruits that are out there for good collagen production. Tremolo mushrooms, which you may have not heard about, but it has five times the hydration of hyaluronic acid, rosehip, aloe, all these great ingredients that really make us healthy from the inside out. I want you guys to check it out. It's easy to use, blend it into one of your favorite drinks or water and carry it with you. And you can, for a limited time, get 15% off by going to Organifi.com backslash Dr. Taz and enjoy their lines. What, how would you advise knowing these seven instincts of tenacity? What would your advice be to moms like me in terms of nurturing our children so that they can develop these instincts effectively? What's the best way to go about it? It sounds like it's not always like the gifted program or the school for dyslexia or all these different things. What is the right way to go about it? And it's also not one size fits all as you pointed out with your two children. Right, absolutely. and again, I think it's understanding those ways of thinking and believing that reinforce resilience. That's the first book, um, as in, you know, being empathic and responsible and learning how to problem solve. Mm-hmm. You model it. Kids see what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, if your child struggles with self-discipline, meaning at an appropriate age, the ability to, to stay on a task and to finish and to be organized. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean they have a pathology and they right away need Ritalin, but it does mean in order to keep pace with the expectations they will experience in school, they're going to have to learn how to be more organized, mm-hmm. how, to, how to sustain attention. And kids with ADHD, for example, if you make the task really interesting and you make the payoff valuable, they perform dramatically better. They need a different set of consequences. And mm-hmm. finally, the seven instincts, and in, in, in a brief discussion like this, it's hard to, to say, right. but I would say one, understand them. They're not that complicated. And, and, and if our arguments make sense in the book and convince you, then take the time to ask yourself, how do I express optimism to my child? How do I demonstrate empathy? You have to start with yourself. Mm. What do I do to demonstrate that I understand these instincts, that I possess them, that I act on them? And mm. how do I respond, as you pointed out, you know, with your child, with their areas of strength, a lot of the kids that you and I work with don't have islands of confidence. And parents are so caught up in trying to find out what's wrong. When when I take a history with the parents here and I do it three or four times a week, first thing I ask is, what do you like about your kid? Where are your child's strengths? Let me see a picture. Mm -hmm. Some parents are taken aback by that because they, well, we're not here for that. We're here because he, he, he cries a lot or he doesn't sit still or he's had a brain injury. And my response is, well, you don't need to see me to know what's wrong with him. You need to see me to define what's right with him and how we're going to use those assets to help your child move forward. It's not all about fixing. It's not all about medicating. It's not all about therapizing or special education. It's about the day in and day out experiences wow. you provide for your child to help them develop a resilient mindset. You know, I, I had a boy among the kids I see with brain injuries yeah. tell me that God gave him a half a brain and there was nothing he could do about it. And, and most adults would, would say, oh, okay, or be upset. And I said, 
all right, so what are you going to do with the half a brain you have? God didn't decide what you're going to do with that half. So what do you want to do with that half? Mm -hmm. you know, so we as parents in how we respond and words are powerful. Right. I can call a child slow or I can call a child careful. And, and I would argue if the child's dilly-dallying on doing something and I call him slow, I'm going to get nowhere near as far as if I say, boy, I appreciate how carefully you're doing this, but we have to find a way for you to go a little faster. Yeah. And what do we do? So, okay, let's say the parents, uh, we collectively as parents, we get there. We get this. We understand it. We understand our role, the need to model, the need to provide different experiences, find these core competencies for each child so that they can thrive in that and, and move forward. What do we do about schools? Like when a school system has certain expectations or a certain culture, you know, how do we tease that out and find the right fits to nurture these seven instincts of tenacity? So I have a project that I'm getting up and going called Inside Out Schools. Mm. And the question we're asking is, what will schools be like in 50 years? Yeah. And, and we think they're going to turn inside out because I don't need someone to, to, to infuse lots of knowledge and information in my head. Uh, rarely does a disagreement between myself and anyone go unanswered because I quickly Google it on my right. phone, right? right. So, so we need to teach kids at an earlier age how to think critically, how to manage information. You know, I thought with the COVID, maybe they would close the schools and retool them. Yeah. And we would start again, but we, we, you know, we've done more harm than good. But I always remind people that in the early 1800s, schools in, in the U.S. were started to keep children out of the workforce. Right because kids work cheaper than adults. And then at some point we said, well, let's teach them a little bit of something, but we didn't teach them any work skills, any life skills. We assume once you leave school, then you learn how to work. You know, there's been this shift and, and there's this push now to, 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 to tell kids and they buy into it, your performance in school will determine the rest of your life. Mm. We say that, what, you, you won't be able to get a job. Don't you want to get it? Right. right. We, we've perpetuated that myth. So when you ask what can schools do, we have to move away from rote instruction. We have to move towards problem solving and critical thinking. We have to move away from uh, uh, suggesting that you're going to get an A in social studies because you can regurgitate a lot of factual information to, mm -hmm. uh, to maybe a little more the way Plato was purported to teach of let's talk about what this means and what we can do with this information. Fascinating. Well, any other advice for parents listening, teachers and educators listening, any sort of advice? I know I want your book. I'm, I'm going to be all over that for sure. But any advice you could give to us before we close out here? Sure. My, my takeaway message is that the kids have qualities they share with every child, with uh, qualities that are unique to them and qualities they share with subgroups. Some of those subgroups are good. They learn fast, they're pleasant. Some are challenging. They struggle to learn and they're restless or impulsive. We have ignored the first two because we think we're so smart in looking at the last one. Mm -hmm. And we have focused on the liability way over the asset. Mm -hmm. We used to say 30 or 40 years ago when I trained, we would say the child with anxiety. Right. Now we say the anxious child. We put the liability in front of the child. So my takeaway message to parents is never forget your child shares a lot of qualities with all kids, a lot of qualities that are unique to them and a lot of qualities that are assets for them. And the mm -hmm. more liabilities they have, the more important those 
assets are to help them negotiate childhood and find success and happiness in adulthood. We can do a better job. And slowly, I think we are, but it's taken a while. Would you call the anxious child? What can we call the anxious child instead of that? I, I, a lot, the child. I, I, well, I wouldn't put the label in front of the child. I would say yeah. the child who worries or the child who worries more. Keep in mind that a lot of these quote pathologies, worry, unhappiness, um, kept us alive. Right. If you, you know, if you, if you only drank from a certain place, ate certain foods, only went in a cave, you knew what didn't have a bear inside, you stayed alive. Children right. who worry, for me, it's too much of a good thing. Most of the problems children have that I see that are not traumatic, meaning not brain injury, not a consequence of an oncology treatment affecting their brain, mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. a consequence of some other genetic disorder. Most of them are not always uh, having not enough, but sometimes having too much of what could be a good thing. Wow. Fascinating stuff. Can't wait to dig more into it. The book is Tenacity in Children. Where can we find the book, Dr. Goldstein? It, it is uh, available on all the online booksellers. I'm hoping it'll be in bookstores, but nowadays we get our books uh, online. And, uh, and I promise, have your assistant uh, email me an address. Okay. I'm going to send you a book for you and a dozen books for your listeners. You give them away as you choose. And I'll send you the other two books, Raising Resilient Children, yes, please. Raising a Self-Disciplined Child. The website is tenacityinchildren.com. Fantastic. Well, more on this for sure for all of us moms out there who are navigating this terrain. And we truly are trying to build our children up, but we get caught in the mentality of the past, right? There's only one way to success, and we know that's simply not true. Well, thanks for listening and watching this episode of Superwoman Wellness. Remember, you can rate and review it and share it with your friends. I will see you guys next time. <music>